This is a Federal News Network podcast. The Air Force has been struggling to hang on to its pilots. The shortage reached 2,000 airmen at one point. The service says it's making headway, but it might be decades before the issue is resolved. Federal News Network's Scott Mossioni spoke about it with the Air Force Director of Training and Readiness Operations, Major General Albert Miller. Current status today, the U.S. Air Force finds itself short about 1,650 pilots. That's an improvement over last year uh, where we had just over 1,900 pilot shortage. And so we see that as a positive for the Air Force. Still a lot of work to be done to get us back to where we want to be. It's important to note that it's not just the total number of pilots that the Air Force is short. It's specific to the type and the experience level of those pilots. So what I mean by that is while we're short 1,650 across the total force, so that's active guard and reserve, it's important to note that the vast majority of that right now is in our lower experienced or younger pilots, what we call our company-grade officers. That's where the vast majority of the shortage is. Right now we have some extra field-grade officers that allow us to make up for that shortage in the company-grade officers gap that we have. So where we're taking risk in the Air Force today is those field-grade officers that would normally be doing staff jobs, working policy, and those sorts of things. We've prioritized the line flying so that the operational units are fully manned with the pilots that they need to, to carry out their operational missions. And so those experienced field grade officers are not filling staff positions, rather they're still flying the line, as we say. And so that's why it's important to look at the size and shape of the number of pilots that we have and not just the aggregate total number of pilots that we have. Is there an area within the force where the shortage is more acute? Right now, it is more so acute in the fighter pilot category. It is, of that 1,650 pilots that were short today, over 1,100 of those pilots are fighter pilots in the total force is where we see that gap. So we are acutely aware that we need to figure out how to solve the fighter pilot shortage because that, in a large way, solves the pilot shortage writ large. And General, what are some of the avenues that you're using to start to get after this pilot shortage issue? One is production, where how many pilots are we producing on the front end? And the way we see it, because we can't hire an experienced pilot into the Air Force at the point of a career, we build from year zero through a 20-year career. And so we have to reliably produce healthy year groups from day one, and those healthy year groups span a 20-year career, and so if you don't produce on the front end, you will never have a healthy year group for 20 years, and you will live with that consequence for 20 years. After you produce them, you have to have the ability to absorb them, and so what that means is taking those newly winged pilots, putting them in an operational unit, and then being able to bring them from inexperienced to an experienced level so that they are really the key to being ready for any adversary we may face in the future. And then finally, it's on the retention side of the house, keeping the right number of pilots when they 
have the option to separate from the Air Force and where we want to retain the right number, we also want to encourage affiliation from the active duty to our Guard and Reserve uh, so that they also have the right pilots with the right experience for their models. And so let me pause there and uh, see what questions you have. When it comes to these company-grade pilots, why are you seeing the shortage within there? Is it their attrition? I remember a few years back there was attrition due to them going into the private sector. Is, is that still what you're seeing at this point? So the reason we have the shortage in the company-grade officer ranks today is the Air Force in previous years underproduced. So that goes to my comment of the focus we have today for production is we need to produce healthy year groups or we will find ourselves in the same situation we find ourselves today. We didn't produce those pilots in the years past, and so now we are living with the consequence that we didn't produce them, so we shortage which is roughly the first 10 years of an officer's career. What is your pipeline looking like at this point? You know, I know that the Air Force was trying to expand its uh, training pipeline for quite some time now. Uh, have you brought that to fruition at this point? So we have made advances on the production side, but we are not where we want to be just yet. So our goal is to produce 1,500 pilots a year. That 1,500 pilots a year is the total production out of the Air Education and Training Command's pilot training. That includes about 150 foreign students. It includes the Active Guard and Reserve numbers. But 1,500 pilots is the goal of what we want to produce every year. So in at the end of FY21, the last fiscal year, Air Education and Training Command produced about 1,380 pilots, uh, which was an increase over the previous year of about 120 more than they had produced the prior year. So we are making advances. Air Education and Training Command has several uh, innovative ideas. Uh, they are taking helicopter pilots and no longer putting them through fixed wing training. They have what's called helicopter training next, where they uh, send Air Force helicopter pilots through a rotary wing only training. Uh, they have gone to UPT 2.5, where uh, they will only fly the T-6, and they will get their wings, and then they'll have follow-on training for the tracks that they have. Uh, accelerated path to wings, where uh, it's an option that uh, would produce pilots in the T-1 only for those air, uh, air crew members that are going to heavy platforms. Things of that nature is what Air Engine Training Command has been doing to to. Uh, maximize what they got of the resources they have. It's important to note, though, that it's a balancing act that you have uh, when it comes to being able to produce them, and then you have to, as I said previously, absorb them in the operational units. One of the things we have to watch very closely is both of those require experienced pilots to train them in the different areas, one to produce them and wing them as pilots and then absorb them in the operational units. So we watch that balancing act of where we need to place our experienced pilots uh, because you could get out of balance very easily if you over-resourced one of those and then you would take a hit in the other area. Major General Albert Miller, Air Force Director of Training and Readiness Operations, speaking with Federal News Network's Scott Massioni. 
Check out Scott's story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, and today I'm thrilled to be joined by Melissa Bradley, the founder and managing partner at 1863 Ventures, an investment company focused on bridging entrepreneurship and racial equity and accelerating new majority entrepreneurs from high potential to high growth. Additionally, Melissa is co-founder of Venture Back Eureka, a community where small businesses gain unprecedented access to the expertise needed to grow their businesses and has more than 20 years of entrepreneurship, investment, and leadership experience. Melissa, welcome and thank you for being here. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Who is the first person that you remember looking up to as a leader and what was it about them that inspired you? So there are actually two people. Um, the first person personally was my mom. Uh, she was a single parent. And what I realized is that she was the leader of our household, but she was also the leader of our community. Um, she was a staunch advocate for children's rights in public schools, making sure that we got a quality education. She was a staunch advocate around rights for renters. Um, We were not in a financial position that we actually ever owned a home, uh, but she made sure that people who lived in various types of housing, we were in regular housing, the people who were in regular housing, public housing, she made sure that their rights were advocated for um, and really just always kind of looked out for, I'll, I'll use air quotes, the little guy, while although we were the little guy. Uh, and then I would say she was a huge advocate of older folks. Um, as part of her job, she worked during the week uh, in a full-time job and then cleaned houses on the weekend, but also took care of elderly folks and a staunch advocate for elderly rights. Um, so that was probably the, the first leader. And then I would say the second leader that really came about professionally was a woman named Crystal, Crystal Gaskins, uh, who actually ran a headhunting temporary firm that I ended up spending about a year at, I quickly realized that was not my calling. But in a world where you are constantly managing the powers that be that want to hire all these people and move people around and the folks who are sometimes in vulnerable positions and obviously seeking a job, she would always manage to treat everyone with the, with the ultimate respect. And part of the business was actually um, managing hotels and getting service workers to show up. And that's a tough job, right, to try to motivate people who barely are getting paid enough under not great conditions. Um, and so she taught me three things. She taught me how to be a motivator and that recognizing leadership is not mandating, but motivating. She taught me that leadership is not just reporting up, but also reflecting and supporting those who may be underneath you from a hierarchical structure. And she also taught me that leadership was not about money, uh, but it was about producing positive outcomes for whoever your customers were. And if you did that, then obviously the money would come. How would you describe your leadership style and how has that developed over the years? Mm. I would describe it hashtag work in progress. Um, it, it has evolved over the years, I think, two ways. One, uh, the more people I've been exposed to in leadership positions have certainly helped me pivot and make adjustments. And then certainly as my leadership roles have elevated and probably as the more people I've been responsible for has elevated. Uh, you know, certainly being managing partner and founder of 1863 Ventures, we manage a lot of people. We have actually tripled our staff this year. And so we went from three people to oh, actually 
12 people plus and growing. Uh, and we went from a couple hundred members to almost 10,000 members. And that's a big deal. Um, I, so my leadership style has evolved in terms of more people that I have reporting to me. I think it's, I, I focus on autonomy. I focus, I'm, I'm very clear that my role is to help other people be successful. Uh, I do set very clear deadlines. I am try to do a good job of kind of projecting what is the overall mission and vision, what are the KPIs and OKRs that we need to hit. And then I feel like I need to get out the way. I need not be a micromanager. I need to recognize, particularly since COVID, that people have kids, they have lives, they have ways that they know how they perform best. And so we now have people who work for me all over the world. And as long as we meet our deliverables, I don't need to know that you're sitting in a cubicle or sitting at your computer from nine to five. Um, And that's because I've been at those nine to five jobs where I literally had nothing to do, but I knew I was told I had to be in the office. Uh, And it just seemed like a complete waste of time. And so I'm really laser focused on outcomes and productivity and advancing the vision and mission and not on What does it look like? Because I think successful work looks different for everyone. And then I would say more externally, as we now have grown to lots of members and we have a social media presence and I talk to people, I'm mindful that the the, probably the most important from an external uh, perspective on my leadership is that I am mindful that I am modeling not just for myself, but particularly for other leaders and particularly black women and certainly gay Black women, uh, you know, there are not a lot of us. Um, you know, you mentioned that I'm a co-founder of Eureka, so I'm fortunate enough to be in the first 30 or so Black women that have been supported through venture capital, which is a sad statistic, but for a different topic. And so I'm mindful that people are always watching me. And I would say that certainly as a Black woman, people are always watching you, not always for the better and cheering you on, but waiting for you to make a mistake and slip up. And so I'm mindful that when I step into a room or I show up somewhere, I'm not just representing Melissa Bradley and my immediate family. I'm representing all of my members and potentially sending a signal effect of what other people are going to expect as Black women. And the final thing I would say that definitely has evolved since now that I'm over 50 uh, is that I feel a much greater freedom to say what's on my mind. Um, than I did before. And I, and I do that. I probably said what was on my mind before, but in a way that was reflective of my frustration and anger with the system. And now I say it with the expect, with the level of calmness and the expectation that it's important that we are honest around what do Black communities experience and to phrase it in a way not based on anger, but really using data. And so I would say I've consistently been a staunch advocate for Black and Brown communities, but has evolved from being very reactive and saying, well, don't do this and don't do that, to saying, let me explain to you why I think it's important that we take this up and really letting the facts drive the discussion. Some of that probably comes from the fact that I've worked in two presidential administrations, and we all know that that just goes back and forth and often times based on rhetoric and not fact. And having six kids in a world of social media, I think there's something, the, the art of, of conversation based on facts and data has devolved to uh, opinions and pundits. And, and I think that's a challenge around leadership because your job is not, in my mind, to convince people, but to inform people and allow them to make decisions for themselves. I, I saw you on a post uh, with a Washington Post um, uh, interview, and it you were amazing. And it's interesting to listen to you describe what you just said, because I could see all of that reflected in how you responded there. And um, make one other quick uh, comment about as a company grows, WEPA is growing as well. And 
you are so spot on. We have, as, as leaders, we have to let go and trust those people that work for us and empower them to do their job and then let them roll. And that's not always easy. This episode is brought to you by Zelle. Whenever you're sending money through an app or online, it's important to do it safely. Here are a few helpful tips. First, always make sure you know and trust the person you are sending money to. Second, confirm you have entered their contact details correctly. And finally, if you don't trust the person or your recipient is rushing you to send money right away, think twice before sending money through an app or online. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.